Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to podcast number 25 in our series on world history. In podcast 24, I reviewed the relatively dull life of commoners on a feudal estate, while also discussing a little bit about the roles that the military elite played, as well as the religious leadership. What we're going to start in these next couple of podcasts is how feudal society begins to break away from that model and begin to form collectively what we'll eventually call the nation state. Feudalism, in other words, ends as these nations of people come together to form the political entity called a country. The abolishment of feudalism, however, doesn't start in one place and then simply run roughshod from there around the world in the areas that were practicing feudalism, and it's all converted within a couple of years' time. Not at all. Feudalism will begin to disappear starting in Western Europe and slowly progressing through Eastern Europe and then eventually Russia and in some Asian societies hundreds of years later. So what we're going to see, however, in the rise of the nation state is, first of all, just to clarify three terms, which I'm often surprised are used erroneously as though those three terms are interchangeable. There are three different words for the same thing. Not at all. And that's what I want to clarify first and foremost. A nation has nothing to do with geography. A nation of people has one or a set of series, I should say, of common denominators, a common set of moral and social norms. They generally have a given language or a few languages, a given religion or the absence of one or the freedom to practice their own. But a nation of people, again, has nothing to do with geography. If one were to take every physical person, every human person physically out of the country of Germany, and collectively move all of those people into the middle of Montana, those people are still Germans. Germany, the, the German people as a nation still exist, even if that geographic entity called Germany doesn't actually possess one German inside. So please know, again, that nation only applies collectively to the group of people. When those people come together and agree on a form of government, agree on a tax base and how the taxes will be assessed and where the tax money goes, they are forming what we'll eventually call a country. But a country, again, doesn't have anything to do with the nation of people. Again, with that idea, that example I had said mentioned a few seconds ago, if you were to take every German out of the country of Germany, 
the country of Germany still exists. There's still that demarcation on the world map until some other country decides to come in and call it its own. It would still be the country of Germany, even though, again, not one person is inside it. So that's a country. When a country gets large enough that the population in one area of the country doesn't necessarily need the same things and doesn't have the same demands that another area of that same nation of people has in a different geographical location within that country, in order to more effectively govern, that nation of people will carve their political entity called a country into various sub-entities that we call states. And that's the reason why in the progression, nation into state into country doesn't necessarily go in that order. Oftentimes it's nation unifies under one flag under their, in the name of their own country. From there, it breaks down into individual states, just as it did, for example, in our own American history. We had territories that eventually were inducted into statehood even though we were a country called the United States of America first. So just to, again, just to unpack and flesh out those terms of what I mean when I'm referring to these three terms, nation, country, and state. All right, why is there one single reason before I go into the fleshed out longer explanations about how feudalism slowly evolves out of European society as the model of nation into countryhood, if you want to call it that, uh, steps in, how, how really is, is there one any one entity that really changes that feudalistic model, which the Europeans had been employing and enjoying for centuries now? And the answer to that is absolutely. And if there's any one item, one reason why nations of people will abandon feudalism and form together to formulate a country, it's because of one thing, gunpowder. Gunpowder was not invented in Europe. To invent gunpowder, that population is going to have to ask how and why. And as, we've, as I've already elaborated on in several past podcasts in my world history series, Europeans, by and large, after the fall of the Roman Empire, were no longer asking how and why. They were so locked on the norms and the ethics and the morals and the ethos of Roman Catholicism, the hows and the whys weren't of interest to them anymore. But that didn't apply to everybody. And specifically, the Asians are the ones that are going to come up with this concept or this idea of gunpowder. Gunpowder, ladies and gentlemen, it's almost impossible to overstate the importance of the discovery of gunpowder. Prior to gunpowder, one could physically protect themselves within a feudal castle. Within that castle, or outside of that castle, you would form a series of walls that would protect that estate. If you were, had the money, that feudal estate had the money, the wherewithal, and the human power, they could develop two sets of walls, an external and an internal wall, to further protect themselves. When that feudal lord had to send the soldiers out to fight, take that concept of walled protection, put that around that human soldier, and that gives you your suit of armor. All of that is effective when the world only is fighting with bows and arrows, sticks, gun, uh, sticks, stones, rocks, and those types of things. 
it's very difficult to pierce those walls, whether it be the, the stone wall of the feudal estate or the metal of armor protecting the human soldier. All of that literally becomes null and void practically overnight with the application of gunpowder. To breach a stone or brick wall prior to the invention of gunpowder would take hours, if not days, if not weeks, depending upon how difficult and thick the wall was. Gunpowder, that's a game changer, folks. There's again no way to there's no way to overstate that. Gunpowder now with the application of having a small explosion send a projectile through a tube of some sort into a solid object like a wall or a suit of armor, you are now penetrating that within seconds rather than within hours, days, and weeks. Admittedly, there would have to be a lot of gunpowder being used to breach a stone wall around a feudal estate. But again, the speed compared to the way humans could do it before seems like it's being done now with lightning speed. With the invention and application in European society of gunpowder, that will bring the end of the feudal castles and walled estates because it simply takes too much money, too many resources, and too much human power and time to build a massive wall that can be breached with gunpowder in a matter of literally of minutes. So if that's not going to protect the people on the inside, how will they become protected? You simply possess the same weapon that your enemy possesses. So when he points his at you, you point yours at him. But then the enemy can get more weapons than you have. The enemy's weapons can launch or be launched further than your weapons. And so you have to improve yours. And the more you improve yours, the more your enemy is going to do the same thing. And on and on and on. Of course, you have an idea of what I'm recommending or what I'm suggesting here is a continuation of a term that we largely don't employ until the middle of the 1940s, the arms race. Exactly. So gunpowder is, again, that element primarily that is going to be begin to bring the end of the walled feudal estates and feudalism and feudalistic society in medieval Europe. That, if you want to look at it this way, is the good news. You might say, well, gee, wait a minute. How, how is that good news? Well, it's good news compared to what I'm about to share next about the downsides of gunpowder. Gunpowder, as we know, again, extremely explosive. Well, hello, that's the reason it's attractive to begin with. But there's also other downsides of gunpowder. In terms of the application of it, you need lots of it. Gunpowder can be slightly expensive to produce, far more expensive than your traditional bows and arrows and the rocks and stones that others can use prior to that. What's more is that if you're going to put a projectile in front of that explosion, that tube or cylinder needs to be made out of something that is stronger than the projectile itself and something that can withstand the explosion that is going to cause that projectile to leave that cylinder. You are now getting into the application of metals and purifying metals in such a way to produce the forerunners of what we'll eventually call modern day steel. 
that's where your money comes in. Not only because of the few people that are going to have the education, they're going to have the uh, know-how, the wherewithal, how to make those weapons, but it's going to be the time and the money involved as well. That's not cheap. In other words, as those feudal walls come down and those suits of armors go to the museums forevermore, the cost of maintaining your independence and defense is suddenly now going up at a much higher rate than has ever been witnessed before in human history. Remember, too, that prior to the application of gunpowder, as long as you were able to protect yourselves either behind a series of rocks or stones or on the other side of a wall, you could be protected from any weapon that the enemy was going to throw at you. Gunpowder becomes that game changer. You are no longer necessarily any safer when you're standing behind a man-made object or even a collection of naturally made objects like sticks and stones. Gunpowder can blow right through that. That's unsettling. The next time the human race is going to witness a game changer like that will be at 529 a.m. on July 16, 1945, when the world enters the nuclear age. Because with nuclear weapons, there is physically nowhere you can go in the world to protect yourselves from an atomic explosion. Even if you were to withstand the actual thermal blast itself, the radioactive air and water that will form after that would then cause you most certain death in the hours or days afterwards, and a very gruesome and painful death at that. More about that when we get into the 20th century after World War, as World War II comes to a close. So, if it's going to cost money to make these weapons for purposes of defense or possibly even offense, where's the money going to come from? Well, you guessed it. It's the person I'm talking to, and it's you, the person that's listening. It's you and I. It's the taxpayers of the political entity that we live in or the country that we live in. So because of this, the state will find the individuals that run the estates, the feudal lords that are now going to be eventually called governors or a variety of other terms of local or national leaders, they're going to have to start tracking the amount of tax revenue coming in as well as the expenses. This isn't going to be simple uh, mathematics like addition and subtraction. They're going to have to have people that know how to work the numbers that know how to keep track of the income coming in as well as the expenses going out. They're going to be able to make financial predictions as well. In other words, the first field of business begins to form as the Middle Ages starts to move into its final stages of existence. So the field of finance slash accounting becomes now necessary in order to, for the accurate record keeping of, those, of the revenue and expenses. Initially, taxes will only be collected when there was imminent threats or in the sense of a war coming on. Prior to that, during peaceful times, it was not unheard of for countries' leaders to actually not tax their citizens. Well, what about the public goods and services that had to be provided? More often than not, that was provided by the church. So for that reason, the state wasn't involved with that initially. 
They say, wait a minute. Okay, well, at some point, that's, things change a little bit, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. When was the last time in re- whatever country that you're living in, that, that you're living in now listening to this podcast, that you had your national leaders turn and say, hey, as long as things are good right now, fairly peaceful, we don't need to collect, tax- collect taxes for a while. Yeah, well, at least here in the United States, good luck waiting for that day to come. Well, is there any individual that we can drag out of the dirt, out of the earth, we can bring up from the dead to point to them and say, you're the one that started it all. Technically, we have a name and we have a place. No kidding. His name was Frederick II of Sicily. He was the first world leader on record that implemented the idea of raising taxes for the common good. Once government officials see a continuous source of revenue, it will become almost impossible for them to ever turn that tap off. We all, as taxpayers, clearly know that song and dance, right? We can recognize that song in the first couple of notes, right? So that's what we're talking about in terms of the rise of the nation state is the emergence of the first field of business, that being finance and accounting, in order to regulate the production of gunpowder and the gunpowder weapons that will be utilized in future wars. Okay, what about then switching uh, gears here a little bit? If we are going to confine these people into larger and larger political entities where the feudal estate will go by the wayside as it is then gobbled up into statehood and into countryhood, what about people's doings day in and day out? in terms of who does right and wrong. Well, that's also going to see with the rise of the nation state, the advancement of laws and a judicial and a justice system, essentially, or a judicial code. Initially, the laws of any particular society, by and large, will be a reflection of local customs and practices. That worked for as long as humans have been walking upright and having the capacity to think about right and wrong and judging right and wrong. But we're more advanced than that now. Therefore, so will become our justice, our judicial systems. As a result, two particular common applications come out of Europe. The first is common law, first implemented by England's King Henry II in the 1100s AD. Common law, simply put, is a system of laws based on judicial precedent rather than on a particular statute or code. So let me rephrase that again, state that again. Common law is a system of law based on judicial precedent rather than on statute. Therein lies the virtues as well as the vices of English law, which eventually will dominate American law and the legal systems of many democracies around the world. Common law is part of the reason why an individual can be accused by the government of a particular crime, and that individual is found to be not guilty and walks away. Two years later, another individual is also accused of the exact same crime and somehow is found guilty. How do you reconcile that? Well, welcome to the vices of common law. In a common law system, torture by and large will not be allowed. In a common law system, John and Jane Q. Public have the ability to monitor 
or to go in and sit and witness how a legal proceeding is taking place. Sometimes my students are amazed when they're sitting in front of me and I tell them that regardless of where you live, you can go into almost, depending upon the notoriety of the case being tried in the court of law, but you can go into almost any courthouse throughout the United States and walk into any courtroom, even with the legal proceeding going on, sit in the back and watch what takes place. Because in a common law system, it needs to take place in front of the eyes of the commoners in order to have confidence in the system. Hence the reason too, the jury of 12 or the jury of 36 in a grand trial jury is generally filled by commoners, the use and eyes of society. Because however, the common law the massive denominator that makes that system of law work is the fact, again, it's based on judicial precedent. That's also, however, what makes these trials take so long to go through the legal system. And you guessed it. It also is why it's so unbelievably expensive. If you were, for example, to take a simple case a situation that I use in my classes where I'm teaching in a classroom. And as I'm trying to make a point on the board, my foot happens to catch the corner of my desk and I fall flat on my face and I end up having a lot of injuries that needs to be taken care of at the hospital. And I have a hospital stay and believe it or not, I need a couple of surgeries. I mean, apparently when I went down, I went down hard, right? And my own insurance company is saying, hey, I'm not covering you. That took place at work. And then the workplace, my, my college that I teach at says, no, I'm not covering that because that was common sense that you shouldn't have fallen like that. They can withhold payment or at least attempt to. Well, in the United States, I have the recourse. I have the ability to turn for a legal resolution to this. So the lawyers that would be defending me would be looking at the situations of judicial precedent where the same types of cases were tried in American legal history, of course, of which the ones that the client won. In other words, the person suing. The college's board of attorneys or general counsel's office would also be looking at those cases that came before. And what types of cases are they going to focus on? Once again, you guessed it, the, in the cases were the institution won. You see, and that's the reason why as that trial plays out in front of a jury of 12 of our commoners or peers, my attorneys are going to bring up those cases where the individual won and try to poke holes in those cases where the institution won. And of course, the college's attorneys will do the same thing from the opposite perspective. So this is, again, just part of the reason why if you ever looked at a law school curriculum, in a law school curriculum, how many of those individual classes, if you're going three years full time, how many of those cases where the students are learning about the law, they're learning it not so much by studying the laws that are on the books right here today as of this time that we're speaking, but they're also looking at the number of cases that came before, once again, setting the precedent for the future course that those laws will take. The other form of law that forms in European society is called Napoleonic or more commonly known as code law. 
primarily used in the country of France, that system is not nearly as interested in legal precedent or judicial precedent as they are with the application of fixed maxims or rules that are on the books as of the time that that trial came to fruition. So again, it's used in France. And just to back up and tie these two systems together or show that there's a tie within the United States, our national legal system is based on common law. Every state in the United States except one, the state system is based on common law. But there is one state whose internal state system is not based on common law. It's based on Napoleonic law or code law again. Why? Because remember what I said before when I introduced laws in, a in the justice system. It's a reflection of local customs and practices. So which state in the United States still reflects and uses code law? If you want to pause it here and think about that for a moment, go ahead. For those continuing or those coming back, that state would be where that had one point had the highest French population when the French colonized the United States. And that, of course, is the state of Louisiana. So we looked at then the rise of the nation state by looking at the application of what we would call the first uh, finance systems and business systems within the United States, the rise of the first fields of business, finance, and accounting. We're also looking at the application of the burgeoning legal system that also rises at the same time. So then let's push the legal system aside for a moment and the financial system is as well and their economic systems. And let's look at then the rise within these feudal estates that are coming together in order to form a country, there's obviously going to be areas where the population is higher than in other areas. And that's going to be the revival of a collection of people that by and large we haven't seen since the ancient world. And that's the reemergence of towns and eventually cities. To leave the feudal estate to go to another feudal estate that is again slowly losing its significance, losing its individuality as they collectively come together to form a country. There's going to be these areas in between the former feudal estates or in the center of a feudal estate that will have a higher population of people than anywhere else. And that's where we're getting our, vers our urban versus our rural. So the rise of the urban centers or towns with the populated um, towns, who's actually going to be more interested than not in working in and shopping in and traveling through these towns is going to be the younger sons and daughters of the peasant class. So why then does a town exist here versus somewhere else? Why does this particular area have a collection of people that the population goes, uh, jumps up unbelievably, that it forms a significantly large city? How does the human race choose what area is going to be a major town versus not? Are we just randomly going to a particular location and say, hey, this looks like it's going to be a great place to establish a town? No, of course not. It's going to come based on need. And there's three primary theories about the rise of the medieval town and city cities as we progress through the Middle Ages. The first explains why cities are established in the northern part of Europe, most or more often than not, 
if you traced the origins, you would find out that those were old Viking fortifications. The Vikings, when they ran wild from the 700s to a little over 1000 AD, a lot of those Viking or groups established outposts at various areas throughout the northern part of Europe, generally facing water or on the water for purposes of trade and defense and the ease or speed of movement. So one, again, one of those theories is the old Viking fortification. A second reason would be continental defense posts that traders therefore became attracted to. And it's no surprise that today in almost any first world country that you might be looking at as an example, it's no surprise that where there's large military defense posts, for example, even within the United States, how you're going to find a larger population that will support the rise of the towns and cities around it because the population is high enough to sustain it. The third and final theory about why these towns rise up where they do is when they follow the development of monasteries and eventually the rise of the primitive uh, medieval cathedrals and or the primitive universities, neither of which I discussed yet, but will be discussed on the uh, future episodes here in medieval Europe. So, Within this, then, this podcast today, we looked at the rise, then, again, of this, how the feudal society is eventually gathering together into what becomes uh, to develop their own country. We looked at the application of the two legal systems, as well as the preliminary theoretical rise about how these towns came out of seemingly nowhere. What did these towns look like then? What happened inside? Why did a distinct class of people open up? and develop within these towns. That's what we're going to begin with in the next podcast. So thank you for listening. Please go to my webcast, ceconsella.com, and email me with any questions or comments you might have, especially book recommendations. If you liked what we discussed today, please leave me a review as well. Have a great day. Mm -hmm.